of the brothers. By these things, we know that we are of the truth. What does that mean? Of the truth? It means we are born of God. Same thing. Parallel statement in the epistle. If we're of the truth, it's because we've been born of God. If we're born of God, it's because we are of the truth. <clears throat> in this present text, hereby, could be translated by this, or, by, or, or because of these things, going back up through the epistle, we can assure our hearts before the Lord because we are of the truth. And I turned that phrase around, that verse around, because you'll see the purpose of that later on. We can assure our hearts because we know we're of the truth, because we have observed what the Word of God has said to us, and we observed the response of our heart to the Word of God. And so it's by this we know that we are of the truth. And thus we assure ourselves. That word assure is a little Greek word. It means to convince by this stuff that we've observed in ourselves in light of the word of God. We are convinced, absolutely convinced that we are of the truth. So John is saying to us, because these things are true of us, we're born of God. We know that. We have confidence in that. And I want to tell you, that's the most important thing on the planet. To, to know for certain, to know and you know her, <laughs> that you're born of God. And forever so. And nothing's going to change that. You're born of God and you know it. And I don't care what you go through in life. You can make it when you hang on to that, knowing that I am a child of God and he's sovereign over my life. And I don't like this mess I'm in. I don't like this valley I'm in. And it may be something I caused myself. And it may be his correction of hand, a corrective hand on me. But I know one thing. When I come through all this mess, I'm going to be the same thing I was going into it. His child. And nothing's going to change that. I'm his forever and a day. Bless God. Amazing grace. Ooh. But let's, now what if? Let's take a what if. What if someone reading what John has just writ written to us, you know, he has just written this to us, right? We're current right now, ever living word of God. So suppose someone looks back over their record of loving and helping their brothers or maybe not so much. And they begin to have this real unrest in their soul. Wow, you know. And then they read the next line. God is greater than our heart. and He knows all things. Like good grief. I've got this unrest in my soul. My heart is condemning me. Like it says in 320. And the Lord is greater than my heart. And he knows all things. He knows exactly every line of failure where I have not loved or not cared for or not done X, Y, and Z. And they begin to have all kinds of doubts. Heart. Greek word's cardia. That can mean you're a ticker. But in the biblical context, it means you're a thinker. <laughs> it's, our, it's the center of our, the locus of our emotions, our volition, our motives, 
our desires, our intents. The word katagenesco is a word that's translated condemn. Katagenesco. Remember, genesco is to know, right? To know by observation. Kata is a prefix, and it means convict here. Because the stuff you know, you don't approve of, wherever you see it. Katagenesco. What you know by observation... No, by observation, genosco, kata, you disapprove of, okay? To observe wrongdoing or disapproval and, and condemning that. You know, it's wrong. And here's a person with doubts. And doubting because they've observed what's in their heart or what hasn't been in their heart. And they're thinking... If I know this about me, can you imagine what God knows about me? God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. That's that same word, genesco, God, genesco, all things. What does that mean? He knows by observation. Now, the key to this is that, this. He knows by omniscient observation. He knows everything before we even think it. He knows what you're going to say tomorrow at 11.37 p.m. So that certainly is reason for someone maybe to have real concern, right? About the things they're feeling in their heart. One thing for certain, and you can book this, If our heart is condemning us over any issue, I don't care what it is. If our heart is condemning us, we're not going to have any peace until we settle that issue. Whatever it is that's causing that, we're going to be lacking in confidence before God until it is resolved. Now, hear me. I'm not talking about lacking in confidence. It's contextually here of loss of salvation. This is not that. This is not loss of salvation. John has written this letter to Christians then and now. This is not written to the lost person out there. This is the word of God to the children of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. So we're not talking about loss of salvation. We're talking about loss of confidence, though, in our our fellowship standing with the Lord, our hindered fellowship. We talked about having unhindered fellowship. We've got this going on in our hearts. We're feeding these doubts. Our heart's condemning us. We're, well, what's happening? We're having hindered fellowship with the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is. We're not being thrown out of the family. The Lord's not divorcing us, okay? But we're having, we're struggling and we're missing it. What did David say? David said, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. What did David know? He knew he had something missing that he had before. 
What did he have before? Join his salvation. He knew he had salvation, but now he said, Lord, restore this. And this person is having doubts when your heart's condemning you. That's what you want. You want to be restored to unhindered fellowship with the Father. But there's nothing there. And you have complete confidence before him. Well, but if our heart condemn us not, we have confidence. Again, the cat is genisco, that's word. But then there's a little Greek pronoun, may, M-E, not. This is a negation. Our heart's not condemning us. Based on the observation of our heart, we're not feeling condemned in our heart. What we know about our heart is not condemning us in our thoughts. That's what that means. We have confidence. Parisia, it means totally, complete, at rest, confidence. Being able to be open and up front, mentally, attitudinally, verbally, before God, and having complete confidence before Him. Now I'll give you this. <laughs> Verses 19 and 20. Simplistic in language, really. No big, difficult words there. But one commentator called these two verses, verses 19 and 20, the locus vesitissimus of interpretation. The locus vesitissimus of interpretation. Locus means place. Vexatissimus is V-E-X-A-T-I-S-S-I-M-U-S. Vexatissimus. You might suspect that first part, vexa. Vexing. That's the root of all of that is where we get our term vexing. And so what locus vexatissimus means is this. This is a place of vexing difficulty to translate and understand exactly what John is communicating to us. Now, I don't have the sophistication that dude has, so I just say, boy, this is a hard place to understand. <laughs> we can read it. And say, okay, I got it. But we might not have. And some people don't get it. And I'm not speaking down to them. But I'll explain what I mean in just a moment. To understand what John is meaning. The perplexity in translating those passages really hinges when we get down here uh, to verse 20. See, we shall assure hearts before him. For... How do you translate that word for? And then you get into these little Greek words. There's H-O-T-I, and that means something. But when it's H-O separate from T-I, it means something. And it goes on and on, okay? And you say, well, this is tribal error, uh, scribal error or what? For. But again, you've got to focus on what the book says. The book says it's written to Christians who know the truth. Well... Basically, there are two interpretations. Uh, it's, uh, there's more <laughs> that you can find out there of these two verses, 19 and 20. But really, there are two basic interpretations, okay? Seem to be just two. One interpretation or application of the text is that the Apostle John is seeking to reassure readers that they are indeed saved or of the truth. And to assure their hearts before the Lord. He's seeking to reassure them that they're actually saved. 
That's one application. The other basic application or interpretation is that the, this phrase, if our heart condemns us, is a warning for genuine Christians not to be complacent in the careful examination of their heart before the Lord. Now that second interpretation there, that it's a warning to genuine believers to carefully examine their hearts, was adopted by the early church fathers, the reformers, and every conservative commentator down through the ages. And I, I think they're absolutely spot on with it because the whole context drives you to that, the context of the book, the epistle. And while I believe that second interpretation is the correct one, I do believe that the first application has, first interpretation has some application to certain believers or supposedly believers, okay? And I want to address that first, even though I think the second one is the right one. So here's the application of verse 20 for those who might be insecure in their salvation. What, those feelings of insecurity may come because they've just read this meeting precepts here and they haven't felt any of that lay down the life, love for the brothers and sisters. And then when they saw basic needs, they haven't been so generous either. You might be thinking, well, you know, I love those people, but I don't, you know, love them that much, maybe. And, you know, I would help them. I know they got some real basic needs, and I would help them. But, you know, if I had a lot of money, I would. But my budget's pretty tight already. And, uh, you know, we're saving for the kids' college fund and saving for retirement fund. And, and, uh, and, and plus, our vacation this year is going to be really expensive. I just don't have any money left to give those people. And then the more they think about their lack of love or generosity or whatever... There'll be a whole gamut of things going on in our hearts. The more the doubts begin to grow, and then they begin to question the reality of their conversion experience. And I know from experience as a pastor, there are those who have great difficulty in coming to assurance of their salvation. And I want to tell you, as a counselor to those, it is one of the most difficult encounters ever to have someone that's in the Word, reads the Word, been in church, all of this, and still struggling after a decade with the confidence in their own personal salvation. I mean, good grief, what is a mortal me going to say that this hasn't already said to assure them of their salvation? And I believe that there are likely some folks who are generally born of God who have that trouble, trouble having that lay down their life feeling of love for someone else. They just don't possess that level of love they feel. But it may be also that these two types of feelings may be found in the same individual. Might be. And so you got this person that is insecure in their salvation, insecure in their response, and so when that insecurity is growing, 
And they're so busy with the insecurity of their own salvation, their self-absorption, self-absorbed introspection, excuse me, takes up all their emotional energy. So there's nothing left at the end of the day to think about anyone else. They're trying to figure out their own program. Now, let's suppose that that person, with all those doubts churning, am I saved or not? I didn't love much, didn't give hardly anything, don't want to, didn't feel it, you know, whatever. They're coming to the Apostle John for a counseling session. And we're going to listen in to this counseling session. So they share their troubled heart. And John says, well, did you not read my letter? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I read it. Well, did you think carefully about what I wrote to you in the letter? Well, you know, I tried to. He said, goodness, I wrote to you about the blood of Jesus, how it cleanses you from all sin. And, and, uh, and if, you, if you happen to sin, you can confess your sin and he'll forgive you of all sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You read that? Well, yeah, I read that. That he's your advocate standing before the Father right now, advocating for his children. Did you read that? Yes. And he's not only that, he's your, he's your propitiation. He paid the price of your sin. Did you read? Yeah, yeah, I read that. You read all that? Yeah, I read it, John. Then John might say, well, are you a person that habitually sins as a, as a way of life? Are you a person that hates the other members of the church family where you're worshiping? Do you hate? No, no, no. No, I tried to avoid all sin in my life and I don't hate anyone. Then John might say, well, obviously you don't believe much of anything about what I've written to you. And the person said, well, no, it's not that. I guess I, guess I believe. I just have a problem believing that it's true of me. And that's where you get down to this, dealing with insecurity. I have a problem in dealing and believing it's true of me. And that's hard to deal with. To which John might say, well, if you're having that much difficulty believing what the Holy Spirit of God has led me to write to you, it may be that you've never received a grace-enabled faith to saving believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in the first place. And I suggest instead of worrying about why you're not loving your brethren like my letter says you should, you spend more time focusing your energy on, on finding out whether or not you're actually born of God. And possibly dealing with the unsaved condition of your soul. That's one application. I don't believe that's the main application of this. Keep in mind, the Word of God only has one interpretation. One interpretation, but many applications. And I believe that's one potential application of this 20 and 21. So what does it say to the rest of us? Just believers, hereby we know. It says the same thing, doesn't it? By this we know. Goes back up. Talks about our fellowship with the Father. Forgiveness of sins. Advocate. Propitiation. Loving our siblings, all of that stuff. Genuine, heartfelt compassion for those in need. And, and not only feeling it, but doing something about it. And say, wow, this, truth, this stuff is true of us. 
We, f- we feel this and we've done that and we believe this. This is true of us. To us, John would say then, yes, my little children, I have not written unto you these things because you know not the truth. I wrote these things to you because you know the truth. But, he would say, if your heart is condemning you, you know what that means to you and to me? It means our heart needs some maintenance work. It needs some maintenance work. I'm going to tell you, now, think about this now. Here we are, born of God. Here we are, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Here we are sealed unto the day of redemption. Don't have to worry about that out there because we're already sealed unto the day of redemption, which is redemption of our body. We've already been resurrected from spiritual death, so we've been spiritually redeemed already. We're in the Father's hand and cannot be plucked out. We've got all this stuff that's true about us, but we've got this unrest in our heart. Well, glory to God, let's do something about it. And get rid of that unrest because all it is doing is not threatening our salvation, but it's hindering our fellowship. And while it's hindering our fellowship, it's hindering our usability in his service for his glory and our delight in being used by him. First John 3, 22-21 If a heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, knows all things. But if it condemns us not, we have confidence. That's where we are. We're not talking about loss of salvation. We're talking about having a heart. We're talking about securing salvation. But my heart's condemning me or condemning me not. That's all. And if it's condemning me, I don't have assurance. I have assurance of my salvation. I don't have assurance pertaining to my unhindered fellowship. And I know I don't have unhindered fellowship. That's why I can't have that assurance. What is this thing in us? Uh, This condemn us and condemn us not. What is this thing in us that does that? It's in our heart. It's a locus of our emotions, our volition, our will, etc., but here, our heart is condemning us, Katarzynensko, and this is the context is us right here. I have observed in my heart things that are wrong, and I know they're wrong. Katarzynensko, I know they're wrong. That's why I feel this way in my heart, this unrest, by the observation of wrongdoing in my own heart. Here's an Old Testament example. 2 Samuel 24.10. David's heart smote him. After that, he had numbered the people. David's heart smote him. <laughs> we, uh, I bet you know, I know, I know what that feels like. Not that I ever had anybody to number. <laughs> you know, I'm saying that, but some things, you know. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in us that I, have, that, that I have done, and I beseech thee, Lord, now take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. David's heart smote him. What is that? 
David's heart condemned him. And the Greek would say katagenesko. It's his conscience. His conscience convicted him. Webster defines confidence, a knowledge or sense of right and wrong with a compulsion to do right. Moral judgment that opposes the violation of a previously recognized principle, ethical principle, recognizes the violation of a previously recognized ethical principle. That leads to feelings of guilt if one violates such a principle. All human beings have a conscience. Every single one, by the creative genius of God, have a conscience. Intuitively, they know right and wrong. That's why when you go stick on one of your little scooters two or three years of age, because all of a sudden it got real quiet, and you walk out there and look, and they kind of, they know. They know. God's design. God's design. Robert Browning defined conscience as this, the great beacon light that God places at all men. An American Indian American native, I guess I should say now. Define conscience as this. It's a three-cornered thing in my heart that stands still when I am good. But when I am bad, it turns around and the corners hurt a lot. But if I keep on doing wrong, the corners wear off and it does not hurt anymore. You know what that is in the Bible? That's a seared conscience, like a callus on your hand. You got a callus on your heart. The word conscience is mentioned 32 times in 30 verses in the New Testament. Conscience. Same word, translated conscience. Romans 2, 14 and 15. Great example of the work of the conscience in an unsaved person. For that when the Gentiles, Paul writes, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. Which shows the work of the law written in their hearts by the finger of God in his creative genius. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, they meanwhile excusing or accusing one another. The work of the conscience. That word conscience is a Greek word. It's a compound word, synodesis. Synodesis. Definition of the Greek word. It's that psychological faculty within us that distinguishes between right and wrong. Neither comforts nor afflicts. It all says the same thing. Our present text, this is condemning us or condemning us not. Because we have observed what's in us. Maybe some other people who have observed the lack of things in us too. Who knows? Paul said, no, excuse me, Luke, Acts 24, 16. Herein do I exercise myself, Paul wrote that, to have always a conscious void of offense toward God and toward men. I exercise myself. What does that mean? This guy's examining his heart. He's dealing with his heart. He finds a sin, he's confessing. It's like going through peas, you know, beans, and you're getting ready to cook, and you pick out the bad ones. He's gone through his heart, and he's, oh, wait. He confesses this is a sin, and 
cleansed from it. He's carefully maintaining. I work at having a heart void of offense before God and mankind. And you know something? That's the way the train runs. If your heart is void of offense before God, you're going to be okay with mankind. You can be okay with mankind, not be okay with God. But if you're okay with God, all fessed up and clean, cleansed up, you're going to be okay with mankind as well. Except those out there that hate Christians anyway. <laughs> they don't need a reason. <laughs> they don't need a reason to dislike you other than Jesus in you. But in us, we have the blessed gift of grace that our conscience that we have, that all other men, women, boys, and girls have, our conscience does not have to work alone because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives working in concert with our conscience. The Holy Spirit of God bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God, first and foremost, confirming that we belong to the Father. And then he teaches us all truth, reminds us of all truth, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God. He brings it to our remembrance. And so he's working with our conscience to keep us on track. But even in a saved person, our, con- our conscience always works in a context. Okay? Our conscience always works in a context. Always. No exception. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're writing that to Christians. Don't be conformed. Be transformed. How? The renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We have to be conformed to this. Not conformed to that. And you know what? We, we're just naturally conformed to that. So we have to say, I'm going to be transformed by this. And that takes the discipline of doing it. Martin Luther said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Wow, what a good thing to have. My conscience is captive to the word of God. How do you get there? How do you get your conscience to be captive to the word of God? We work out our conscience in the gem of God's word every single day. We work out our conscience in the gym of God's word every single day. And this is filled with all kinds of calisthenics for our conscience. And we can stay in shape when this stays in us vibrantly. Let the words of Christ dwell in us richly. We'll stay in spiritual shape when the words of Christ dwell in us richly. And none of us want to have a world-seared, flabby conscience, do we? (laughs) So it's the Word. The Word of God. And you know what? Scripture talks there that the Lord is greater than our hearts. Obviously, He knows omnisciently, with His omniscience, has to observe. And He knows full well what we're dealing with in our struggle and and our hearts condemning us. And his word is designed to do exactly what he knows needs to be done in us. That's it. 
This is him talking to us. I know what you need. Read it. Absorb it. Hide it in your heart. David said, I've hidden this in my heart so I'll not sin against you. 2 Peter 1.3 says he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. So we've got everything we need. We just have to use what we've got that God has given us already. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and a discerner of the intents of our heart. Thoughts and intents, a discerner. So, we can know what God intends. And we're able to then discern, being able to discern, we're able to deal with it, identify the issues, and then correct it through confession in the Word of God. All of Scripture is given for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. So we get it all. He has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have it all. And the Word of God, which He's given us, rightly used, rightly applied to our lives on a daily basis, our conscience is going to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit exactly as God intends. And as we go along life, He's going to keep us on track, loving one another, serving one another, helping one another, sharing one another. God is going to keep us on track. And you know, what's more important than that? To be on track with the Father, living lives pleasing unto Him, saturated with His Word, and saying, Here I am, Lord. Send me, use me, whatever you please. I'm blood-bought, and I rejoice in the fact that I am. May God give us grace to do just that. Lord, indeed, may we do just that. Serve you with our lives all the way to glory. Loving, caring, sharing, telling others about you. Lord, all the multiplicity of ways that you have to use us. Lord, use us to your pleasure for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.